So this is well, Joe, huh? This is almost perfectly well, Joe. Huh. I still, people will hear my mind kind of zones in and out uh, still. Uh, wonderful, fantastic guest. Awesome conversation. Yeah, Amanda Frost. Because I'm not feeling 100%. I was not 100% on top of the conversation. I zoned out uh, occasionally, were, but, but that's all right. You're great as always. She was fantastic. You're, you're fantastic. You will continue to be the reason people tune in. <laughs> this week, you and Amanda Frost. Oh, boy. Um. Uh. Yeah, it was a good conversation. People are going to... Uh, um, you know, if you, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm imagining, of course. Don't li- say it. Don't say it. I think I already said it in the show, didn't I? You did, and that's plenty. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, that's the one thing he asked is that we not talk about federal courts anymore. <laughs> but it's in the news. <laughs> All right. It's in it the is. news. Look, here's the thing. This is why the topic of today's discussions, one reason why it's very important is because, I mean, you know, as we're sitting here. There's there's litigation going on in the state of Alabama, and and because Alabama assigns to a nominal nominal people who are nominally judges, probate judges, but in this sense they're acting more like executive officials. Um, you know, the judges are, have this; they're supposed to issue marriage licenses, and they're getting conflicting commands. Right? That you know, you've got some federal judicial actors telling them that um, they're forbidden to deny licenses to same-sex couples. You've got state uh, judicial officials, uh, Chief Justice Roy Moore, saying that they're prohibited from actually supplying the licenses. So they're getting directly conflicting commands. One is saying that the law requires what the other is saying it forbids. And that's just not a situation that can continue. Yeah. Uh, And the division is between state judicial and federal judicial actors who are issuing these conflicting commands. And I, fe- I frankly feel a, a fair bit of sympathy for, the, for these Alabama state uh, probate judges who may be trying to follow the law and they're getting these such dramatically different instructions about what that is. Yeah, very clear. Very, I mean, can you imagine if this is 90%, did you say 90%, Joe? That's, I'm feeling 90%. Yeah. So if you, if you were your usual 110%, <laughs> Which is a 20% increment. There'd be no stop in this show. Mm, okay, There'd cool. be no stop in it. Right. You know, you know what else happened this week? What? Or the last two weeks? What? We continued not to get any downloads from the state of North Dakota. You know. <laughs> Zero. Zero over the lifetime. The, we, you know There's how, something wrong. There's do you know some... how many more downloads we have from Poland? Hundreds of more downloads from Poland this than is from what, the state of North gotta Dakota. There's got to be someone is some uh, person who's unfairly targeting us. Which is, and I objected to that on that ground alone. But someone who's targeting us <laughs> is diverting North Dakota download traffic to make it appear as if it's from somewhere else. Yeah. Whether maybe, that's maybe somewhere another, else. You, you think another state's trying to take credit? It could be. It could be, you know, some South Dakota malefactor is <laughs> trying to masquerade <laughs> the North yeah. Dakota. It could be maybe it's getting diverted to. I think you it's know, Minnesota. South, like Saskatoon in Canada. I mean, who knows where this stuff you is don't, you don't know. being diverted to, but it simply can't be true. You don't think so? That not a single North Dakotan has yet downloaded oral arguments. It doesn't, it's not possible. doesn't make any sense. One of our many listeners from, uh, gosh, where are they all? We have listeners from Israel, and we only get the general, so okay. you know, we don't get specific so listen, things. Here's but, the thing. Know. This is, and it's a genuine and heartfelt plea. <laughs> <laughs> to our many North Dakota listeners. Yes. Please, one of you, email <laughs> us and confirm <laughs> that you listen and that you are in North Dakota and you downloaded it while in North Dakota. 
so that we can find so that we can verify that there is someone masquerading that traffic. Here's how this works. Here's okay. here's what you need Please to do. Please email us. Here's what you need to do. You need to get a get a friend first of all. Get a friend to help you with this. Oh, you're going to go to that exhibit and get photoed next to the chipper? <laughs> that would be awesome. That that would be one way, but you need to photograph you need we need a photograph of you in front of a North Dakota landmark. It could be highway sign. Sure. It could be the uh welcome to sign, but from the other side if it says welcome to North Dakota, you're not in North Dakota yet, you know what I mean? So you got to download it from the other side. Yeah, side. yeah, totally. So it could be welcome to Minnesota or South Dakota, whatever, from the other side of the sign. But it, Fair it, enough. In front of a North Dakota landmark, which is, I don't know, other than the exhibit. But right. I'm sure there are beautiful landmarks. Get in front of one of those things. Get a picture of yourself holding up your phone. With oral argument with, on it. Not, not with it playing, because that doesn't mean you downloaded it there. It, what it needs to be is you on the download screen of Overcast, and I recommend Overcast for sure, this purpose. Sure, right? sure. Overcast uh, is great. Showing the progress bar of the download happening. Oh, right? this is very specific. In one hand. Now, on the other hand, you need a photograph of, of course, today's paper. Right. In order to show evidence of anything, you have to be holding up a newspaper. This is, I believe, a rule of evidence, Joe. <laughs> it's certainly a rule of right. hostages. You've got to make the person hold the newspaper. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't like to refer to our listeners that way, but I think that's Nor maybe somewhat accurate. Maybe somewhat. Well, in this specific case, and right. this is an extenuating circumstance. Speaking of emailing us. Where should they email us, Christian? Well, well that's a subject to some feedback. It is. I had always thought. I had always thought. And you would have thought, you know, let's face it. I'm a nerd, Joe. I'm going to own up to it. I'm a total nerd. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about email addresses and form and, and including particular email services. Right. But anyway, uh, uh, here's, here's what you need to do. You email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That's oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. All one word, no funny business. That's what I always say. As no you're funny fond of business. saying. Right. No, no dots, funny business. None of the but it crazy turned out stuff. the funny business was on you. Because listener Russell. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> listener Russell wrote to tell us that in fact, when you're talking about the part of an email address that is to the left of the at symbol, mm-hmm. you can put in as many dots, periods, etc. as you would like, it, dots, and Gmail will deliver it anyway. Right. Now, this doesn't work for any email service, but no, apparently we're talking Google about Gmail because we have a Gmail saying, email Did you address. actually try it? Hmm? <laughs> I, I did. did you know, so it does work. It does. You put in dots wherever you want. Right. So the thing is that, that what we did not count on was that Gmail, uh, Google, is funny business friendly. It is. You can put now, I don't know how many other, like now I need to read this message again. All right. uh, Gmail intentionally ignores periods in email addresses. So that all we know is periods. Right. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Nothing in there about stars or dashes or any other funny business. Right. But we've got, we can link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. to the the gmail information page okay of course we'll do because maybe there are other things you could put in there too so i need to amend what i always say which is email us at oral argument podcast at gmail.com with only limited funny business yes right yeah limited funny business the funny business that gmail can handle without going tilt <laughs> yeah, exactly that's all we care about. now i got something else to say okay i, I i've mentioned this on the show before i'll say it again because the deadline is approaching we still have a little bit of time um, but if you listen to the show and you're thinking, boy, I love being misinformed by Joe and Christian, <laughs> right? Uh, you're in luck. Y- you could actually go to a foreign country where I would mis- in- misinform you in person in mm. a group, and you can get law school credit for this. And I also recommend, uh, you know, if you're a law student thinking about what to do over the summer, um, there are a bunch of externships that can be arranged for you. Our school does it, uh, 
arranges for global externships and, and there are some stipends that go with it. But uh, if you're if you're a 1L and you're looking for things to do, um, taking some courses, getting some credit and uh, and and especially if there's a stipend help you pay for this and um, and working overseas in, in China. So this particular one that I'm doing is in China. I'm doing uh basically two weeks of it, uh, a course. And, and is there a pay, an information page yeah, on the link UGA it up the, website? Yeah, I'm going to that... link it up in the show notes. Okay. I'll link it up. So just look in the show notes, which you can get to at our website, by the way. Just go to hydrotex.com and click on oral argument. But they also should appear right there in your podcast app. Sure. So we'll link that up there. The deadline's approaching. Uh, love to have you. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a really... You had a great time when you went to it's China. It's a really good program. Yeah. It's a, and I feel really good about the program. And, you know, we've got some of the students who went with me two years ago who were trying to encourage more students to go now. So awesome. um, even, even if you're skeptical about these programs in general, this is a really good one. So, uh, and it's not just UGA students. It's uh, students at other schools who might be interested. You know, go check it out. Maybe you will. Um, maybe it's something you'll want to do. Uh, anything else, Joe? No. Boy, that was really definitive. Anything, nothing else? Petition denied. <laughs> All right, on with the show. So we got Amanda Frost today, which is totally awesome. Now, Amanda, now here's the way I see this story going down, and and you tell me, um, you correct me where where like I've got the wrong folklore or something like that, because um, I don't know when you started working on this piece, inf- inferiority complex, but it's awesome. And not too long ago. <laughs> well, so so here's so I don't know when was it, Joe? We started talking about this, you and I. Uh, it was with Anthony Christ. It was late last year. Yeah, I was. I want to say like November or something. Yeah, like something that. like November, yeah. October, November. And uh, um, and Michael Dorff had a post on a similar issue. Right. And then we had Michael Dorff on the show. I think and we th- talked about it with Steve Vladek. And then too. we had Steve Vladek on the show, and we talked with him about it. And we're all trying. And I'm writing this blog post in yeah. federal courts, and I'm not a federal courts guy. <laughs> so, but but I can't for some reason I'm like I'm captivated by this issue. Uh, um, and we'll we'll preview what the issue is. It's basically are, are state courts bound by the rulings of lower federal courts, and in what way? And and can they be bound? Can they not be bound? Can they never be bound? You know, these are the questions. So I feel like all of us are kind of talking about this, and I feel like I'm feeling my way around in the dark with this issue um, as uh, probate judges in South Carolina are trying to wondering maybe what to do. Um, yeah. Uh, and and then unbeknownst to me, maybe the, maybe the rest of them knew it, but unbeknownst to me especially. Like you're getting all this figured out. Like it, probably since July, you'd had all this figured out. <laughs> uh, well, not quite, but it's actually it's interesting. I heard your your um, podcast with uh, Michael Dorf, and one of you had said in a previous podcast, state courts are bound by lower federal courts. A misunderstanding that you'd had, and I want to say that's completely understandable because it just <laughs> seems to me bizarre. I remember as a, when I figured out that state courts weren't bound by the regional circuit. You know, so the Maryland and Virginia state courts are not bound by the Fourth Circuit. Right. That just seemed to me very odd, at least worthy of thought, and not, it shouldn't be just presumed to be true, which had seemed to be what, you know, the conventional wisdom was. Of course, they're not. But without a whole lot of analysis as to why. Yeah, and, and, even, and even some courts, right? So even, um, even some state courts wrote have written as if they are bound. And just to, yeah. for the listeners again, I, you know, we've talked about it before, and this is an ongoing series of, of, uh, of podcasts of ours that just to antagonize um, uh, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos, as far as we can tell. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> you, poor Nicholas. I told you ahead of time we wouldn't try to antagonize him anymore. But, uh, um, uh, but you know, so the federal court system has trial courts, appellate courts, and then the Supreme Court, and just like many state court systems do. And under the supremacy clause, uh, federal law is, uh, is, is supreme over all 
you know, conflicting state laws or actions of state officials or even actions of, of, of federal f- officials. No, I think, Christian, I think you yeah. you were the one who probably had said in a prior episode or you had been assuming that the that the state courts would be bound by regional circuit pronouncements of federal law. I think I've basically and maybe the record is that completely the opposite on this. But my recollection is I, I never thought that I oh, actually yeah. thought the conventional wisdom was the case. Although there are, the thing that's fun is the there are arguments on both sides of this that are quite complex. Yeah. And just, right? to, just to be clear, Joe, I'm not uh, I, I didn't mean to uh, paint you with the brush of being um, as ignorant as I was about. about <laughs> it's but, not about ignorance or not. It's it's about my my assumption was that um, that uh, there there wasn't a, a sort of there there wasn't the corresponding eerie solution that had already been given and state courts so state courts as to federal law were yeah sort of they you could take an appeal to the supreme court and they'll hear it or they won't but as to pronouncements of federal law state supreme courts are on a par and, and ju- yeah with the regional circuits i just had assumed the conventional wisdom to make to make it concrete for the listeners because i think anybody you know this is a federal courts issue it can get really pe- it, people can think of it as really complicated but it's actually very simple and this is what got us thinking about it the the fourth circuit which is the 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 geographic region of the federal courts that covers north carolina south carolina virginia and maryland maryland yeah um uh strikes down uh virginia's gay marriage ban in, in a suit brought against Virginia, right? And at the same time, South Carolina, there's a suit in, that was going on in South Carolina district courts against South Carolina's own ban. Right. And some of the probate justices or justices of the peace, I don't know what it is, in Charleston were getting ready to issue marriage uh, certificates and then they had to stop. And there was some, the South Carolina attorney general said we should let our suit go through. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking that the there's a definitive ruling from the Fourth Circuit, which includes that state. Right. And now isn't that the pronouncement of what federal law is, at least for people in that state? And if it is, is it possible that people who refuse to issue licenses in South Carolina could be subject to 1983 suits? Um, and that's a, a whole other layer. These are civil rights suits for for basically, you know, flouting federal law. Um and that's when we first found out that uh that the Fourth Circuit's ruling on federal law here, the Equal Protection Clause is not binding on um, on South Carolina state courts, which are entitled to go at this a different way. Or at least that's what a lot of people think, yeah, that it's I, not binding, right? Because this is what's interesting. Yes, and I would say that it's what's interesting to me also when I look back at this is it used to be the case that a lot of states said they were bound by lower federal courts. That you know, In other words, it's over time without anything definitive ever happening by Congress, by the Supreme Court, nothing was said by some federal actor to, to make them change. But over the course of the 20th century, they went from a lot of them, a lot of the individual states saying they were bound by lower federal court precedent to now the vast majority say they're not. There still appear to be a few holdovers, although they're not always consistent. So sometimes you'll read one Supreme Court opinion that differs from the state Supreme Court opinion that differs from that you know, state's past pronouncement on this issue. So they're not always consistent. But what I think is interesting is over time, the states have decided to assert more independence, which is, of course, not the way it usually goes in our federalism over the last, you know, 100 years. Yeah, and it's not, it's weird because the, the hold on state, the, the states which are holding on to an idea that they are bound, or at least act as though they're bound, are not necessarily the ones you'd expect. I mean, South Carolina yeah. is not exactly the state you associate with being very exactly. happy to implement fe- federal programs, right? Um, so, exactly. what, what do you think? It, so, in your mind, what I, I didn't see this in the um, I didn't yeah. see it in the article, but um, yeah. what what explains this uh, shift over time in, in your mind? 
You know, it's a good question. And actually, maybe partly it's explained by the fact that a whole bunch of legal scholars just said, well, it's conventional wisdom that this is the way it is, that lower that state courts are not bound by lower federal courts. So that's something that scholars have been writing for 30 or 40 years, but without really any explanation as to why. Um, We also had uh, a couple of Supreme Court justices in concurrences. So um, uh, I think it was... I think it was Justice Rehnquist, before he was Chief Justice, had a statement in a concurrence that state courts weren't bound by lower federal courts. Um, uh, Justice Thomas said the same uh, in a concurrence. And so he maybe said those- it, it, Justice Thomas said it at greatest length, right? He really gave sort of a... It was a paragraph, A right? lengthy... Yeah, but, it, but you know, it's not just a throwaway line. It's a, yeah. it's a considered paragraph that gives some analysis, some sense of what's going on. Yes, although, you know, you might be uh, reading that paragraph, which I quote in my article. What's interesting is I think it suggests he says basically state courts aren't bound by lower federal courts interpretation of federal law. But he puts the word lower in parentheses. And I think he's actually trying to suggest that state courts might not even be bound by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but that is like a weirdly open question, too. I mean, the Supreme Court hasn't said it's open in Cooper versus Aaron. of course, said states have to follow its pronouncements and just about everybody on the face of the earth who's sort of in, you know, academia, on the judiciary, et cetera, thinks that's the case. But Thomas has some, you know, out there view, well considered, I don't mean to be, you know, intellectually defensible, but not mainstream views on these things. And I think he was even going that far. Yeah. Um, I, I read it. I read that parenthetical as, as yeah. maybe more charitable and less radical than you did. Okay. Because like i'm just thinking if if i were writing something like that like why would i put that in parentheses and you almost get the sense that there was a first draft which just said federal courts and he wanted to clarify i mean the question i guess is why is it in parentheses so so what it says is i don't yeah. know if we've really gotten it out on the table uh, for everybody but so he's got this line which says that state courts aren't bound by the decisions of lower federal courts but lower is in parentheses and 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 what you i think you mentioned this in a footnote in the article yeah. amanda that that there are some yeah. some scholars who have suggested that the that state courts are not bound even by the the decisions of the Supreme Court, so they would be entitled to take a different view of federal law so long as they are interpreting federal law, which is supreme under the Constitution. Uh, but yes. they are not bound by this even the Supreme Court's interpretation, which you know seems to be like some combination of Marbury versus Madison and Hunter's Lessee would seem to <laughs> seem to go the other yeah. way. But you know that maybe there's some like defensible argument. But I took that inclusion. Like if you really thought that that um, that state courts were not bound by Supreme Court interpretations, I don't think you would have put that in there at all, right? I mean, I don't know how. To, like, what yeah. is your what what is it about that that makes you think that maybe he was because it's a concurrence, well, right? He's not writing for anybody else; he's just writing for himself. No, although I mean, of course, that's I think he sort of enjoys doing that, like <laughs> saying in a concurrence the more radical position he has, and he's comfortable with the fact that he's the one holding it, and he's not speaking for the court. Yeah. Um, but I, I took it to be, I mean, when I use a parenthetical in that way, maybe that's when I use parentheses in that way, it's sort of like saying you could add this qualification in or not. Um, but maybe, you know, he certainly didn't expound on that. So you're right. I'm speculating. I'll I'll freely admit I'm speculating. If he'd, if if he'd done the old trick of putting a question mark in there before the parenthetical ended, that would have been some question mark. (laughs) That would have been some level 10 trolling. You know, maybe I should like write him and ask him. Sometimes I think like the direct approach. Why not? Um, Why not? Because I'm curious, but it is a little a field from our, from our issue. But although, well, except that I'll just say this, it raises the interesting point 
that there isn't any clear authority as to why the U.S. Supreme Court's precedent binds state courts, other than we can all come up with lots of structural arguments. But even that, you say Martin versus Hunter's lessee, I mean, that was clear state courts had to follow the, the ruling of a Supreme Court in that very case. Yeah. But, which by the way, it didn't. <laughs> state just ignored what the Supreme Court But Cooper said. against Aaron can't be explained on any other ground, can it? I mean, although there it's executive officials, not, not judicial officials, but, but there, I mean, that's... Oh, yes, I totally agree. Cooper versus Aaron would directly contradict the point that I was saying that... Um, uh, Justice Thomas was making. He may not have been making it. Yeah, and the Supreme Court can revisit all. I mean, they could overturn Marbury versus Madison well, of tomorrow. Course they could. It would be, uh, yeah. be unpleasant, but <laughs> but but and just so people, in case people don't don't uh, have Cooper at at their fingertips, Cooper against Aaron is a case that uh, you've got the uh, officials in the state of Arkansas who are trying to prevent the implementation of the uh, Little Rock School Board's desegregation plan, and um, the district court is trying to implement this plan and uh the eighth circuit says i think i think i'm remembering this correctly the eighth now i'm now uh, now i'm uncertain but the lower federal courts were in disagreeing with one another the district court and the eighth circuit were in disagreement about whether or not uh the governor and the legislature could interfere with the school board's effort to implement the desegregation plan and the supreme court said you can't do that we've (laughs) we've already made clear uh, in Brown, that this is going to occur. This is the law of the land, and you, these executive branch officials and legislative officials can't throw their bodies o- across the door. Uh, in some instances, literally uh, throw their bodies across the door uh, to stop the the Little Rock School Board from doing what they're supposed to do under the law. Yeah, right. And so that they're not um, uh, now. That's not the not. It's not state judicial officials, right? It's it's the other two branches of state government. Yes, and it's true. And But they were just making clear, we are the supreme interpreters of the Constitution. What we say it means is what it means. That's the sort of, that's the citation in Cooper versus Aaron that I was referring to. It's sort of cited for that authority. Right. So there certainly is a clear Supreme Court statement to that effect, but many people have sort of debated where does that come from? The Supremacy Clause doesn't, it says federal law is supreme. It doesn't say the Supreme Court of the United States is the supreme interpreter of federal law. I mean, I should make clear, I'm very comfortable with Cooper versus Aaron's yeah. announcement. <laughs> well, we, we, we could always make some news here. I mean, if you really want to make some waves, <laughs> yes. you can. <laughs> um, and, and maybe I was wrong to speculate too far, uh, to go too far on what Justice Thomas might have been saying with his parentheses. But uh, what he did clearly say without any speculation is that, you know, state courts don't have to follow lower federal courts. And I should add that the whole Supreme Court at the very end of my writing this article, the entire Supreme Court chose to, or not, the majority of the Supreme Court uh, signed on to an opinion with a similar statement in it. Um, so it does seem to be very mainstream at this point view. The Supreme Court statement was dicta. So, And these are not, I mean, so the, the issues as I see it that, that, that you write about here and that are of interest, especially now in, in, some, in some of the gay marriage cases is, first of all, the question that that you identify the conventional wisdom as answering and maybe the court as not directly but but at least indirectly answering that's are the state courts bound by as are they actually bound by um the decisions of of lower federal courts second decision a uh, second question is um should they be you know can we make can we make arguments about why they they should be either under federal common law or something else and then third of all could yeah. congress or the courts to, is there is there the federal power to make the states do that if they didn't want to 
And then finally is this uh, question that, that Michael Dorff had been pushing on for a while that, that seems to have dropped off a little bit, and that's uh, um, do, the, are the, do the states have the power to declare themselves bound by federal law? And he had taken the, 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 the position that they did not have that power um, somewhat like counterintuitively under the supremacy yeah. clause, um, and, which was quite interesting. It's what led me to, to write that blog post. And, um, and that, that issue you don't really address in the article, but it's in a way – it's implicit that, yeah. that you don't agree with that position. I don't. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that's do I is that pretty much a map of the different options as you explore them? Yes, very very well uh, stated. Well, I, <laughs> I, I am fishing for compliments. <laughs> 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 um, so so let's yeah. take so let's um, first of all, I guess um, you know, Michael Dorf also wrote a post responding in part to to, to your blog post on yeah. profs, which was an outgrowth of this article, um, indicating that he. Very strong, you know, indicating some reasoning about why he thinks as a just a, as a factual matter, state courts yeah. are why the conventional wisdom is right. Yeah. And did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just speak to that just to a minute and talk about what he said. And I guess I guess I'll make clear, though, this is how I start off my article. I don't think there's a there's a lot of clarity on this. In other words, I don't have a strong argument in my favor to say the Constitution intended for state courts to follow lower federal courts. And this is a clear violation of the original intent or the, you know, the structural um, constraints of the Constitution. I don't have a strong argument, but I also don't think there's a strong argument on the other side that says that makes it so very clear that state courts were supposed to be independent of lower federal courts. And considering the fact that I think it leads to, you know, this problem of intrastate disuniformity. So, you know, the Fourth Circuit coming to a different conclusion than the Maryland or Virginia state courts, considering it leads to that pretty serious problem, a problem that was serious enough to lead to Erie and the Erie decision, then, you know, I think it's worth questioning this conventional wisdom, which isn't based on any sort of bedrock constitutional foundation. Now, um, a, just to go very quickly through the argument, so you know, Michael Dorff points out correctly, well, the Madisonian Compromise suggested that state courts were there to decide federal questions. The Madisonian Compromise is the provision in Article 3 that says Congress doesn't have to create lower federal courts, but it can choose to do so. So, you know, the assumption was, well, Congress might not create them, and then state courts would be solely responsible for deciding state law. Or um, even if Congress does create lower federal courts, they were supposed to share that jurisdiction with state courts. And so, that idea is the framers thought of state courts as a very important part of our interpretive structure of interpreting federal law, and they were trusted to do so. And I think all that can still can be true, and yet you could still say, yes, but nonetheless, they should defer to lower federal courts when those courts decide a federal question. Because, of course, there's lots of federal questions state courts will address without any lower federal court precedent. And then, yes, they're perfectly competent to decide those cases. But I don't see why that means they shouldn't defer especially when we think about the evolution that happened over time, where today we have a, a lot of federal courts, a, a real structure, trial courts, a courts of appeals that uh, exist. They're permanent. They're not those you know, uh, circuit courts that were made up of two justices in a district court, as was originally um, envisioned. We now have this you know, group of federal judges throughout the country deciding federal law. And, and I think this is key, we have a Supreme Court that cannot possibly decide all the conflicts between courts, including the conflicts between state and, low, and lower federal courts. So why not say, well, as a result of the lack of any strong original intent here, plus the evolution over time, why don't we say that in the role of the federal courts, as compared to the state courts, and the incapacity of the U.S. Supreme Court to review these circuit splits or, or state-federal state splits, you know, why are we so sure the Constitution didn't intend for state courts to have to follow lower federal courts? 
So that's not, I mean, it's not, you're, strong. You're, it's not a strong, I, I'm saying, I'm not making a strong case for my point, but I'm saying this, the arguments on the other side don't seem that strong either. So why not, if, if the evidence is mixed? E- even granting an originalist point of view, yeah. even, even granting that it's, it's not strong, you're saying? Yeah, I'm just saying, I don't, yeah. I don't see, I don't think I have a sort of, you know, uh, clear winning argument about what the original intent was, or even how this, we should, should view the situation today based on the evolution of the federal courts and their expansion over time, and the expansion of federal question jurisdiction over time. I don't think that my argument is like really strong and a winning argument for my view that state courts should follow lower federal courts. But I also don't think it's that clearly in support of the conventional wisdom. So it's a bit of an academic exercise because I acknowledge that the conventional wisdom is pretty firmly established at this point, which is state. So you actually said it in two different ways and and they sounded slightly different to me. So I just want to make sure that there's not a nuance here. Um, So one question, one, one approach could be that state courts should defer. Another is that they would be bound. And one sounds more like, you know, uh, some version of Chevron or maybe Skidmore or whatever. but. The other is they are bound as as federal courts believe themselves to be bound by the pronouncements of state supreme courts on questions of state law. So which which do you think it should be? Yeah, well, I guess as I will say as a constitutional matter, like what does the Constitution require? I think there's evidence on both sides. So I think it, like let's say the conventional wisdom today was state courts should follow the lower federal courts of their region. And if the Fourth Circuit pronounces on the meaning of federal law, then Virginia and Maryland are, and South Carolina, North Carolina are bound to follow those decisions. If that was the conventional wisdom, I'd say, yeah, there's some constitutional evidence to support that. It's not rock solid, but it's there. Of course, today we have a different conventional wisdom. And so my response is kind of the same. All right, well, it's not 100% clear that's wrong, or even, you know, there's sort of evidence on both sides. I think it's one of those questions for which there is no clear constitutional answer. But that's why I was sort of started to write the article, because I was like, why does everyone assume this is so constitutionally (laughs) obvious? Yeah, right. that's what led me. To, yeah. That's what led me to scratch around in it to it too, without but without the um, uh, the heavy lifting yeah. that you've done. I I would just want. But what to, would the better practice be? Would it be for deference, or would it be for them to follow? I mean, it seems to me if you're getting the the, the efficiency, yeah. the the argument for you know if the federal courts have pronounced it, given their um, greater familiarity with federal law, um, and for the sake of avoiding the disuniformity, you, they simply should be consider themselves bound by it, not not merely that they should defer to it. Yes, I think so. The the best result and one that I think Congress could do, could easily enact or, or has the constitutional power to enact would be a rule that says that state courts are bound by their regional court of appeals. So I actually I've written another article that said I don't think disuniformity is actually all that bad a thing. So I want to be careful here not to conflict with myself. Uh, I saw that you were careful <laughs> yeah, in the footnote yeah. to do that too. Yeah, I saw that. Um, and I still, I still think that's true. I think disuniformity between like California and Massachusetts is really not a big deal and doesn't require a Supreme Court to resolve it true. every time. But intrastate disuniformity, that is when the law is, is the Fourth Circuit says one thing and Maryland says the opposite, the Maryland courts say the opposite. I think that's a real problem. People of the state living under two different interpretations of the same law. And so I like a rule that would prevent that from happening. That's exactly where I wanted to go because I wanted to play up the the eerie parallel for a second and and talk more about that interstate conflict just to make more concrete to the listeners what the harm is from the conventional wisdom, right? So when you say living under two different laws, it's not just like abstractly living under two different laws, but you could be, uh, you know, like in these cases, a justice of the peace 
who is subject to suit in federal courts and state courts and different outcomes will occur in those suits depending on where you wind up in court. Now, you can try to remove it and removal jurisdiction adds a layer to this, which is kind of complicated. But I think that the Alabama judges are in that very situation on this uh, right now. Yes. They are living with this very situation. Yes. Right. And 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 yeah, so you, there, there's a reason to think that um, that that it. You know, you should at least have an – it may well be that whether you live in Maryland or Washington state um, makes a difference about the likely application of federal law to you because you would be in vastly different places. But it shouldn't be the case that it depends on like you know <laughs> wh- what the person who takes you to court had for breakfast or you know whether they yeah. want to remove it or – you know, it, it sets up all these what, what we always call forum shopping problems that we don't want people to game which court they go into in order to get an advantage. It doesn't really – you know, there's a lot of deadweight loss involved with that with that kind of thing. Yeah, and if you look, uh, and, if you look at Erie, yeah. Erie, the Erie opinion itself, exactly, full exactly. of this language about how this is terrible. We can't have intrastate disuniformity, and that's exactly what we have under this system. And and, and, and Erie, and we did a whole show about this too. This was um, uh, Joe's one of Joe's favorite cases. One of my two favorites. One, yeah. yeah, you couldn't have just one. No. Um, <laughs> I have to have Caroline products as well. No, of so. course, Joe has to have two because he's a special snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sorry I missed your eerie episode. I need to. Uh, it's it's out there. All right, it's out there. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, um, uh, it's it's a good one too. Joe did a really good job uh, picking that cat. It was it was more exciting than I thought it would be. <laughs> and my, I would I may I may even uh, attribute my my budding interest in federal courts to. There you to go. That show. There you go. Can I just interrupt to say all my civil procedure students in their evaluations of my class always say it wasn't quite as boring as I thought it would be. <laughs> which that's, i take to be great praise <laughs> that that's what we live for it dulls the pain of realizing that your students are happiest when you don't do your job yeah. and cancel class right um well so so erie works the other way so so uh for a long time federal courts uh, when when an issue of state law came up uh didn't weren't weren't bound by um uh state interpretations mm-hmm. of state law and so they could kind of just make stuff up, right? And, and uh, which was called federal common law. Common law is the word, the technical term we use for making stuff yeah. up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and Erie comes in and says, no, you, the, the, uh, when it, if it's not, there is basically, well, there's a very narrow category of federal common law, but you are bound uh, federal courts by state court judgments on matters of state law. You can't do this by your own lights thing. Um, and, and so that, you know, that, that was, as you say, a move toward uniformity and and um, eliminating this interstate problem, in, 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 alleviating the problem of not knowing how state law would apply to you um, because you don't know which court you'll end up in. Yeah. Um, and and yet, for some reason, the conventional wisdom is that this uh, uh, the same problem on the federal law side is perfectly okay. Well, just and just to be fair, because actually an early critique of my paper made this point, and it was a good one, so I, I changed the paper. To be clear, there is a parallel structure between Erie and what happens today, because lower federal courts, when they're interpreting uh, state law, let's say in a diversity case, right. they only have to follow the precedent of the state Supreme Court. And they actually right. aren't bound by state lower federal courts, although they're supposed to, I mean, sorry, lower state courts, although mm-hmm. they're supposed to look at what those courts say as sort of evidence of what the state Supreme Court would say, but they're only bound by the state Supreme Court. So a, a critique of my paper could say and did say, all right, well, there's not really any difference between the Erie rule and the current conventional wisdom because states are bound by the U.S. Supreme Court, just like the federal courts are bound by the state Supreme Court. But the significant difference is while pra- it, it's, it's true in practice, it's true in theory, but not in practice. In practice, there is so few Supreme Court opinions to guide anyone 
that if you tell state courts they're only bound by the U.S. Supreme Court, then they're really hardly ever bound at all by any federal court. We, another another way of saying it, that is that the incidence of disuniformity um, would be uh, from, from this kind of structure is, is is much greater in the context of federal law because of how little clarification the Supreme Court is able to do. As it, yeah, exactly. Now, so one exactly. thing I thought of when I was reading through this is that. Um, in my post, I kind of refer to the conventional wisdom, well, well at least to uh, Michael Dorff's reason that he gave on the show. I think he gave it in the, his blog post as well. The reason for the conventional wisdom, this idea that I think I called it um, um, uh, uh, precedent follows authority or, or I, I uh, forget yeah. what I called it, uh, something like that. Um, but, but the idea is that the bindingness of precedents follows a hierarchical structure of review. And and the whole problem is that that um, while state court judgments are appealable to the United States Supreme Court, they are not generally appealable to uh, appellate courts or federal district courts. With a couple of wrinkles in there that you deal with: uh, habeas corpus for yeah. state criminal convictions for one, and removal yeah. um, for another. And there may be even be some other weirder examples that that I that I don't know about. Um, but this brings up an obvious thing and and uh, an obvious. Uh, I don't know how obvious it is, but uh, that one possible solution for this is if if Congress is going to monkey around here or if the Supreme Court is going to monkey around with changing this, why not make every state court judgment appealable as of right to United States courts of appeals on federal issues? And then the Supreme Court still has cert over those. Um, I I don't know if if that's beyond the capacity of – I wouldn't think that would be beyond the capacity of circuit courts to deal with, but it would address that. Um, relationship and carry with it um, the bindingness. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so first, if you don't mind, I'm just going to challenge the the sort of basis for the question, which a lot of people say, including Roy Moore, oh, well, state courts don't have to follow lower federal courts because lower federal courts don't review state courts. But precedent has never directly, the presidential force of opinion has never directly followed the path of appellate review. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, so, uh, for example, when a state court issues an opinion which it opines on federal law, but then gives an independent, adequate state law ground for the decision, so it's not reviewable by the Supreme Court, it's still supposed to follow the Supreme Court's views on the meaning of federal law. Right. It doesn't, and maybe it won't be reviewed, because it won't be reviewed, it really can get away with it, but it's not supposed to do that. I didn't think that was your best example. I mean, you have other yeah. examples in the paper, yeah. which are, I think are great. Yeah. That, that one I didn't buy as much because... Okay. The, I, I, and and yeah. it's been years since I've looked at this adequate yeah. independent state ground stuff. But my yeah. understanding of why the Supreme Court, um, while they'll uphold something, even if they got federal court, um, uh, federal, federal uh, the federal yeah. question wrong, is that it doesn't matter, right? This the, yeah. the the state, you know, even if we reverse, the state would yeah. still uphold. So it's a it's a kind of harmless error. Um, am I right about that? What am I missing well, about this ground? No, I'm, yeah. that's sort of. The, I think that's not quite the point I'm making. Although I'm maybe I'm missing your point. The point I'm making is that a state court. Imagine that you're a state supreme court justice and yeah. just written an opinion in which you've given a opinion on federal law that could decide the case, but you've also given an opinion on a state law question that is an independent and adequate state law ground for the decision. So you're right. Nothing will change if the federal decision, federal part of your d- decision is wrong. Right. Right. You are nonetheless as a state court. No one thinks you're free to just flout the Supreme Court, to just ignore the Supreme Court's views on the meaning of federal law, just because you know this opinion is unreviewable. We don't think of state courts as 
free to ignore Supreme Court opinions just because they write them in a context in which the Supreme Court will never review them. Are, but that, is that right? That doesn't seem – but but yeah. is that really true? Because it, so, Well, certainly so, it would be shocking for us to read a state Supreme Court opinion where like part two of the opinion is now that I've given you an independent adequate state ground for my judgment. I'm now going to write about why the Supreme Court is 100 percent wrong about this federal law question and how I refuse to follow it. And it's crazy and they should they should change their mind. Right. I think that would be perfectly I don't see a problem. I mean, I do see a problem with it. I see that it's wrong. But (laughs) and I do and I do get an image. I do get a mental image of of a state court judge with two pistols in the air just shooting them off, you know, 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 going crazy. But um uh, but I don't see how that's a not merely criticizing it, but saying I, yeah. it's wrong and I won't follow it because it's wrong. That it, that part of it, I think, is shocking. But if a, if a state if a state Supreme Court judge gives an interview which says, you know, I know that uh, the supremacy clause and all that, but I don't feel bound. Uh, but, you know, that never feels binding to me. Like there's no action just because the person said that thing. The point is that if there's if there are adequate and independent state grounds then everything else they say as a matter of federal law is immaterial. I was going to say, well, that's an interesting debate. <laughs> um, I could give you other examples if you wanted to. Yeah, um, yeah no, no. I, yeah. Do yeah. You, I don't know if you, you, you only yeah. say more about this particular issue. I mean, if you want to, because I do think you have other examples. And I could be totally wrong about this. I'm sure I am. And we'll get email about it. But, uh, um, but so your other, other examples, examples were quite good uh, and, and more direct. But but maybe I'm wrong about this one. So I don't I don't. Yeah. Well, I think you are wrong. <laughs> By the way, am I, who am I talking to right now? This, this, this is Christian. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So Christian, I do think you're wrong. I agree with Joe on this. I would be shocked. It would be, I think, beyond sort of even the realm of like modern day. Well, I guess Roy Moore might be an example of someone who would do that. But it's hard to imagine a state Supreme Court justice writing an opinion that says, I have just written an opinion with a state law ground that decides the case. And now I'm going to explain how the Supreme Court got the law all wrong and how the federal law should be interpreted differently than it said. That to me is just, it, it's violating what is the obligation of state Supreme Courts to follow Supreme Court precedent, whether or not they'll get reviewed. That's, and to me, it doesn't, it doesn't turn on the fact that they're going to get reviewed. It's the fact that in our understanding of the structure, the Supreme Court tells the lower federal and the state courts what federal law means, and those courts are bound to follow. So, yeah, okay. I don't have, I can't cite you anything to prove I'm right and you're wrong. So I, you know, it's just a disagreement that we have, but I, I don't see it. The way well, I do. think we agree that, that state courts always yeah. have an obligation to follow the law and the Supreme Court. And if they say that they don't, they're wrong about that. It's just that the yeah. adequate and independent state ground rule is, 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 as I read it and remember it, it's more of a harmless error thing. And so we're not, it's not that you, it's not that you were correct. You know, when we, when we uphold your judgment on adequate and independent state grounds, we're not saying you were correct to say that you weren't bound. We're just saying that it doesn't matter that you got all those other things wrong. Well, so then, well, so then, Christian, I guess that I think actually we then all agree because I guess my point is more that people say to me, uh, like Michael Dorff or Roy Moore, oh, well, state courts don't have to follow lower federal courts because they could never be reviewed by lower federal right. courts. And it's true that maybe as a practical matter, they can get away with it, but they're still wrong. You know, I could say, but they're still wrong. Just because they're not going to be reviewed doesn't mean they were right to ignore a lower federal court. So then my analogy is, that's the same, and for the same reason, a state court that issues an opinion with an independent and adequate state law ground could get away with continuing that opinion by going on and talking about how it's going to ignore Supreme Court precedent on the federal issue. But it's wrong to do yeah, so, yeah, even though yeah, it, it doesn't make it right. That's it, my, that's my yeah. point. It doesn't make. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. So, what were the other examples yeah. of things that show that this precedent authority yeah. equation isn't quite right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just this idea that 
it's not always true that a, that a court has to follow another court because it will get reviewed by that court. So another example is um, all the circuits now have put in place a rule. Now, granted, it's a rule they created for themselves that says the first three judge panel to decide an issue binds the entire circuit uh, unless they go on bonk and reverse it. So the first three judge panel in time sets precedent that the next three judge panel has to follow, even though obviously the first three judge panel will never review the later in time three judge panel. So that's another example where there's a precedential binding force to a decision, even though the court that issued the decision will not review the, the three judge panel that, that then is supposed to follow it. And another example is the federal circuit, which uh, it's a, this is a little bit debatable at the margins, but it thinks it can issue binding precedent on questions about that are unique to its jurisdiction, even though those same questions can come up in other courts. And it thinks what it says on those questions, you know, patent issues, et cetera, are binding on other federal courts of appeals, even though it can never review those federal courts of appeals. And, and even if it's wrong about that, or, you know, even if yeah. you debated it, the, your, your point yeah. really, like with the adequate and independent state grounds thing, yeah. even if even if they're wrong about whatever, it doesn't matter because it's not an impossibility to conceive of things working that way, right? It's, it's it, and, yeah. and, and we're comfortable, we, you know, even if we yeah. disagree with that, we, everyone accepts the three-judge panel thing and, and maybe you can conceptualize yeah. the en banc is providing a certain kind of, but Regardless, right? We're comfortable with the idea that sometimes right. people are bound despite not being in this reviewable relationship. In that, fact, the three, what I like a lot about the three-judge panel example is it's, 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 it seems very much like the state Supreme Courts and the regional circuits because they're bo- it is true that they are both subject to a common reviewing entity that can, at some point, state a rule that both of those entities would fe- would feel bound to follow if they're if they're following a proper conception of their roles i would argue um and that's just like the two three judge panels they're both subject to a higher court which is to say an in-bank court right they, yeah. they could they could both later be told oh by the full court no this is the this is the rule of decision right and yeah. so and then going forward they would know that that was the rule of decision well just so for a circuit court and a state supreme court they could both be told yeah. later this by the supreme court of the united states no, the right way to read the statute is this, or the right way to read the Constitution is this. And they would feel bound to follow it, right? Yes. Yes. And also, that also relates to a point a lot of people have said, a lot of scholars have said, well, state courts aren't bound to follow lower federal courts because they're coordinate courts. They're equal to each other. One's not inferior to the other. State courts aren't inferior to lower federal courts. And my argument to that, it, well, one, I say maybe they should be considered inferior when it comes to interpreting federal law. But even if you don't agree with me on that one, why, it's not always the case that the court has to be superior to bind. So, for example, one three-judge panel, the first in time, is not superior to the second three-judge right. panel. But we just have an, a first-in-time rule there, and that makes sense to us as a practical matter. And this matter. is something Joe and I were talking about earlier. Also, that, that, that argument that the reason that um, they're not bound is because they're coordinate is not really an argument, right? It's a conclusion uh, almost masquerading yeah. as an argument. I'd say masquerading, but really what it is is it's, it's a conclusion that kind of presumes lots of other policies that aren't stated and and it kind of obscures wh- how those policies would work in this instance right so um uh you know what are the what are the real reasons that you wouldn't want what you call coordinate courts uh to one to be bound by the other and of course they are in a complicated relationship because the the federal lower courts are bound by the state supreme court and they do sometimes certify to the courts hard questions of state law um and yes. 
And I, you know, you know, the judge I clerked for thinks there should be a lot more of that. And, and I agree with him about that. And, and so, too, I would love to see the state courts certify stuff to the federal courts or or have this, like I said earlier, or, or maybe make every state court judgment on on federal issues ultimately appealable to the courts right. of appeals. Like let each institution do what it's good at. Um, well, let's yeah. and let's get to that policy question of the because as I was reading this paper, the thing I kept thinking about was um, what sense would it make? For Congress to pass a statute that said that state supreme courts are bound by the regional circuits' decisions on questions of federal law, what sense would it make for Congress to pass that statute while at the same time not giving the regional circuits a reviewing role of those very same state supreme court judgments? Yeah. To me, that makes no sense to say you're yeah. bound by it. But that that other court is never going to get a chance to review your work on that on that very issue. It seems to me you need you would very much need to do both, right? It's a hammer you're saying of of review, right? It's like it's it is you're bound by it, and there's a right of review. Although, of course, we have a rule in Erie that says to uh, federal courts, you have to follow the state. Supreme Court's view of state law, yeah, and yet state courts never review them. I, I know, and I, and I yeah. find that quite troubling, actually. Yeah. That the state courts yeah. never. I mean, I, I'm I'm um, you know, when I teach IP survey, for example, there are many areas of IP law that are state law driven, and you've got federal courts of appeals sometimes walking out on rather long limbs, yeah, uh, 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 un, under the name in the name of Erie, right? Yeah, and and, and I find it very troubling. Uh, because yeah. the state supreme courts aren't aren't don't don't have a way to say in some direct fashion. Look, yeah. that's just crazy talk. That's not. That's, that's not, why they should certify more. Actually, in, I remember in my blog post, I dealt a little bit with this. Like, what would it be like to say that state courts really are bound by federal law? Um, uh, if, if if like the Supreme Court said that, or the or even a congressional statute, but yeah. but like a state court just defied it and said, no, we're not. Yeah. Like, how do these things get reviewed? And and what I was thinking is that they would get reviewed in a case in which it was appealed up to the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. And the uh, um, and and where the underlying federal issue was one on which the state court and the court of appeals disagreed, yeah. right? And so, what would actually happen in that litigation? It was a really great point because this is where this is, I think, why that we've never had a real definitive exactly. statement about yeah. what state courts. Because of course, what the Supreme Court will do will resolve the question. They'll say, "Well, how should federal right. law They'll be just resolve the merits. They, they, that, they won't just rever- the only way it could get resolved is if they reverse, saying, "In fact, you're bound by federal law," and so we're going to uh, vacate and remand. Right? They could say, I suppose, yeah, they could say, like, we we are not granting this case to address the merits, but we are granting this case to make it clear to the state court that until we address the merits, you're bound by the regional circuit, as Congress has told you. And you know, this is assuming my hypothetical statute. Which passed. means that there was an independent violation of federal law that the Supreme Court is remedying, right? Yeah. And in the face exactly. of such a statute, I think the court might feel um, that that there was an important point to be made on for, for just that reason. Right. But in the absence of a statute that the state court was yeah. clearly flouting, um, it seems hard to yeah. imagine the court granting review to reach that holding as a matter of the Supreme Court's own articulation of federal common law. Yeah. And that's the sense in which I thought that this, in yeah. some ways, telling a state court that it's bound without maybe the statute or something is an, is an important sense yeah. kind of unenforceable. 
because they're only going to get reversed yeah. when they made a mistake ultimately. Probably, although I would sort of I I put some stock, maybe more than I should, in like the norms yes. of being established by this. I agree you with know? you completely, and that's what I was. I mean, I, it's unenforceable, but that doesn't mean that it wouldn't do the work. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because I, I actually think if if the Supreme Court said it, or the uh, or certainly if there was a statute that state courts would take that seriously. Maybe Roy Moore aside and a few others, yes. but uh, but most of them would take it very seriously and would actually do it. And so I agree with you. I think norms are are maybe more important than enforceability. And, and for those who are concerned about sort of state sovereignty, in some ways, this could sort of help because they could say we are about, you know, this is not we, let's say, elected. Most judges, state judges are elected. You know, this isn't our choice, but we are told by the Fourth Circuit. Uh, but we're sorry, we're told by Congress and a statute that we have to follow our regional circuit. And so... You know, in some ways, it would be nice and clear. I mean, for those who are paying attention, it would be nice and clear to everyone where the the reason for the state court's decision, as opposed to now, when often state courts sort of say something like, well, we kind of defer to federal courts, particularly if they're in, you know, agreement, but we don't always, and so maybe we'll defer here. You know, that's that's sort of muddy, whereas in this way, if you want accountability, it's kind of yeah. clear. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. I was saying, yeah, yeah. I was agreeing with you. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you, um, uh, in another part of, of, of my post, thinking about Michael Dorff's position about how, um, at least originally, how states can't, um, uh, can't even choose to be bound uh, by federal law or can't, uh, because they're yeah. – uh, one thing I was wondering about, and I wonder how this would, would work and, and whether you think it would cause a problem under the conventional wisdom, is there anything to stop the state of like South Carolina from establishing the South Carolina Commission of Federal Law? whose job it is to produce authoritative announcements about federal law, which are binding on the state courts. You mean, sorry, so right now, is there anything that would prevent South Carolina? From doing- yeah. It, it, suppose the, suppose the conventional wisdom is right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and let's suppose that, that Michael Dorff's um, uh, original argument that state courts are bound to apply federal law by their own lights because of the supremacy clause. Suppose that's wrong, but yeah. the conventional wisdom is correct. Can you see a court having a problem with a state coming up with alternative ways to define what federal law is other than using courts? Interesting. And so the courts then would plug that commission's view of the federal law into their decisions? Yeah. And it's similar. I mean, this comes from this is one step removed from saying from like the state of South Carolina, you know, the, the first thing is it yeah. says, you know what, the Fourth Circuit's better at this than we are. So we're just going to we're going to be bound by the Fourth Circuit. And maybe they don't talk functionally. Maybe they talk formally. But that's essentially what they do. Another step removed is to say, you know what, we've been looking at the various state courts and, and, and at the federal circuits. And we think the best court on federal law is the Supreme Court of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They just they're just getting it right all the time. You know, and, <laughs> and so why, why duplicate all this work? We've got this great body of work. And so the state. Uh, the Supreme Court of Kentucky's yeah. rulings will be um, authoritative on issues yeah. of federal law, at least until we say otherwise, right? Unless, yeah. uh, and then the, the next step removed from that is for the South Car- for South Carolina to establish an administrative commission, which is staffed by bureaucrats, which produce yeah. authoritative interpretations of federal law. Now, yeah. are any like under the conventional wisdom, just from a federal court's perspective, is there a problem with 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 any of those things? You know, you, those are good questions. Um, but my thought is no. There's, I mean, I think I just I disagree with, with Mike Dorf, although I hate to say that since he's right <laughs> all the time. I really, there's no one I go to, you know, I go to him first, his blog and everything for this, yeah. his take on this first. So it's a given that he's always right. So in the, in the right. hypothetical world where he were wrong, let's, let's <laughs> yeah. spin this one out. I'm so hesitant to disagree with him on anything, but I did think he was, 
and and for example, I think you know his point about the conventional wisdom is right. You know, he makes a lot of good points there. I don't follow his argument about why state courts can't, or maybe I just say I don't agree with his argument about why state courts can't say as a matter of state law we choose to follow lower federal courts, and that's we think we're bound by them because as states we've decided that as our state, you know, that that's our our view as a state court of what we have to do. So likewise, I don't think there's a problem with them saying we choose to follow the federal precedent, the interpretation of federal law by the Supreme Court of Kentucky. You know, it's just a, or, or defer to a commission or, or adopt a view of a commission in the state that has come up with its interpretation of federal law. Yeah, uh, and are all of these, I'm, I'm now yeah. finding myself completely lost. This is Joe. Um, would, it, are, would all of these decisions be reviewable on the merits by the Supreme Court of the United States? Given that it is a federal question that's being answered, of, of, I think of course, right? I mean, right. It's, these are just the. So, South if the Carolina- litigant didn't like the answer, was aggrieved by the answer, yeah. could could take that case and ask for certiorari on the ground that the answer given was incorrect on the on the merits. I suppose they could also raise the sub the procedural point. Um, they found this wrong answer by a wrong method, namely using the Supreme Court of Kentucky or right. using a commission or whatever. Right. But, but what the party aggrieved will really be complaining about is the answer as a substantive matter was simply wrong. I, yeah. I think, and, and, and my thought with this was that the, the only thing I could think of that would stop South Carolina from using one of these methods to resolve private rights is something like the Republican Guarantee Clause. But of course, that doesn't seem applicable to me because South Carolina is interpreting federal law. And so there's not a particular reason to make the judges accountable for um, uh, as a part of systemic accountability, because after all, they're, they're applying yeah. someone else's law the same as if they were applying New York's law. I was going to say, I can see one. I'm just going to, I'm sort of thinking as I speak here, but one potential objection to the South Carolina state court saying we're always going to follow Kentucky or we're always going to follow a commission. We feel bound by a South Carolina commission's view of federal law is, and this is a, an idea that I'm taking from Jim Fander, who's written a lot about this. Yeah. One could argue that when state courts are hearing federal issues, they're not really fully state courts anymore. They're quasi-federal tribunals constituted by the Congress under the, you know, this is a, a Jim Fander argument, uh, under its inferior tribunals clause. And they're sort of quasi-federal courts. And therefore, maybe they're a little more limited in exactly how they go about deciding cases. They have to really adjudicate them. They can't plug in decisions by other decision makers. That's I'm just throwing that out there. Are there? Yeah. And I'm wondering if there have been so, so you could challenge you could. And as you point out in the article, I think, um, yeah. you know, there have been um, uh, uh, kind of the, the federal courts have found that state courts, when resolving these things, are, are, are bound by federal procedural rules, which are tied up with the merits. Right. Exactly. Uh, and um it, have there been decisions by federal courts about state court resolution of federal issues that find that there's some defect in the state court's interpretive methods? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that was the case law you were talking about, the the sort of reverse eerie cases that say to federal, that say where federal court, the Supreme Court tells state courts, when you're deciding that federal issue, you have to do it using federal procedures for deciding cases. Yeah, but that was about that was about juries fact finding, right? And I, but but not about how to determine what the law means. Um, well, yeah, although I mean, there's also I guess maybe this is you're going to say it's similarly slightly different, but the state wanted to have a very short sort of statute of limitations period. They can't yeah. do that. The state, and I agree that's different, but um, the state. Oh well, exactly. In the same case, Dice versus Akron, the, the one that said you have to use a jury, not a judge. 
They also said that they had to, the issue of whether there had been fraud, it was a state law fraud question. I don't get too much into the yeah. merits of the case, but it was a state law fraud issue. And the state standard for finding fraud in a situation was very hard. It was very hard to prove there'd been fraud. And it all, that fraud, if there had been fraud, it, I don't want to get <laughs> too okay. much into the merits, but basically it was, it, was a, it was a hurdle to getting to the federal issue. So you had to figure out whether it had been fraud. This guy had signed a check. I'll, I'll just give the, I'll give the facts. The, um, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, somebody had been injured on the job and was trying to sue under that federal statute to get money for his injury. And, and the employer's response was, well, we didn't violate the Fair Labor Standards Act, but in any case, you shouldn't even reach it because he signed a check we gave him that also waived all his rights to sue. So that's obviously a state law issue. Did he waive his rights to sue? And then you have to get through that state law issue to reach your federal question about the meaning of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the state court hearing that case said, well, when we, when we decide whether he waived his rights or decide whether he was, it, was a, it was a fraudulent waiver, in other words, he was uh, coerced into waiving his rights, we determined that using this state law standard that was really made it really hard to right. show fraud. So really likely that he would never get to his federal issue. And they said a judge decided it, not a jury. So the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, that's not right. You're placing too many hurdles to getting to our federal issue. So you, state, are not allowed to decide that a jury, de- a judge decides that question, and you're not even allowed to apply your very high standard mm. uh, of proof needed. So I think that comes, I agree that's not squ- on all fours, but I think that comes close to telling states, this is how you have to go about deciding an issue. Yeah, I, right. I mean, because there, there is a bit of structure by saying you've got to use this institution to decide this kind of question. Um, there's a little bit of procedure in yeah. terms of what it means to waive. And, uh, you know, in, in my post, I referred to Bush versus Gore, the concurrence, which is the only, again, my knowledge of this is limited, but it's the, the opinion that I can remember that, that, that gets into the internal workings of a state and, and, and messes around in there. Right. So this is the concurrence that said basically that the, that the legislature uh, and, and not the court determines the meaning of the state election law for purposes of choosing presidential electors mm-hmm. from Florida, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and and that never seemed to work. Like, what does it mean? F- you know, what what is a state's law uh, disconnected from the methods the state has set out to determine it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, so that's the only one that I could that that I could think of yeah. that. Uh, and again, it didn't win the day, right? Yeah. So, so you, you the fact that the Constitution even says that as the state legislature shall direct. I mean, the rest of the court thought, well, what it means for a legislator, legisl- for a state legislature to direct is a matter of uh, uh, of how the state chooses to organize itself, and the Supreme Court of a state is an integral part of an, of determining what the content of state law is, right? Yeah. And and so I'm wondering if the same thing would apply to federal law. And obviously there are limits on it, but in construing the meaning of law, that seems to be a, a task which is a little bit different than at least these other examples. So how did we start going down this road again? Where you think this road is bad? <laughs> no, I'm, I can I'm see just, the look on his face. No, no, everybody. I'm just trying to figure out what what um we're trying to answer. What question about who? Well, can I? <laughs> Like, I'll just I'll just say I, what I think the sort of bigger question underneath the admitted minutia of what we've been discussing is to what degree can federal courts or the Supreme Court tell the state tell the state courts how to decide cases, right? To what right. degree they interfere with the state judicial process? Right, and, and uh, so this is this is the you know we started with the conventional wisdom question. Now we've gone all the way to the other pole of saying, hey, maybe state courts uh, must use uh, um, must decide federal law by their own lights. And and the argument against that is that, 
you know, states might choose uh, um, as a, you know, states can choose many ways to resolve legal questions, including deferring to other institutions or finding themselves bound by other institutions. And is that possible? Are there any constraints on that? In his latest post, uh, Michael Dorff says, well, maybe states uh, since uh, can, can opine on federal common law and can find. So he I think this is um, cutting back on his position earlier about the, the you know, the whether state courts um, must use their own best lights to determine uh, the content of federal law or whether they are um, uh, whether they're entitled to feel bound by other institutions. And maybe I think he's he's decided that maybe uh, Federal common they can pronounce on federal common law because they're competent to do that unless reversed by the Supreme Court. It's I don't know maybe this is too in the weeds. You seem totally unsatisfied, Joe. <laughs> no, it's just very. It's I'm not unsatisfied. Um, I, it's it's um, it's difficult for me because I don't uh, teach or write in the area. It's different for, difficult for me to keep all the threads sort of separate and so that I can figure out you know what's going on and what I'm thinking about it. Um, it does I, the the when Amanda mentioned the 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 sort of the fan, Fander is that his name? Yeah, Jim Fander. Jim Fander's Jim. idea about that state courts, when they're hearing federal questions, are acting in a in a federal court like capacity, right? And that therefore that would constrain their options about what they could do, right? Well, that raises the question. All right. Well, what what are a federal court's what are a true real federal court's options? about right. how how to do stuff yeah right and of course they have m- many many ways of answering interpretive questions and uh and this i think many people have made the observation that the supreme court doesn't appear to take uh interpretive methodology as seriously as a matter of stare decisis for example it itself seems to sort of remake the law of interpretation every time it engages in interpretation yeah yeah uh so how bound are federal courts on how to interpret federal law? Well, you know that, I mean, part of my overall theory is that all legal systems are primitive at some level, right, of analysis, meaning that there are some, you know, if you think of the chain of reasons that reach all the way from uh, fundamental, you know, unstated premises to the um, outcome in a particular case, that at some level, those reasons are going to be totally ungrounded, Right. And, and it seems like in our federal system, the Supreme Court, uh, like Breyer and Scalia, disagree about what the reasons are for picking for picking a particular interpretive method. Yeah, and and therefore our legal system is primitive at that level. In the same way that you know that Hart and others describe primitive legal systems as legal systems that lack secondary rules. Well, we lack these like quaternary rules, right? <laughs> the rules that that uh, the rules that govern uh, reasons why. You would have particular interpretive interpretive methods that would then form reasons. Well, I'll just for doing say that I think you're, you've you've all said everything absolutely. I agree with everything you said about how the interpretive methodology does not seem to have the same binding force, but we do see it like Chevron deference. Now, granted, the Supreme Court seems to ignore it sometimes when it should, but <laughs> but more federal courts have definitely taken the view. Right. That they're no longer free just to decide what they want about the meaning of a law that's ambiguous that an agency is interpreted through rulemaking. Right. They and, as, to, and as you as you point out in the article, even state courts have done that. Yes. Um, it, Abby Gluck's done great work on this, by the way, who's a professor at Yale who's really studied the way states engage in statutory interpretation of federal law. So uh, anyone who's interested can look at her work. But and she's really done empirical studies of this. 
Mm-hmm. But it's it's I agree there's not a lot of consistency in treatment, but I'm not sure that's not because we couldn't come up with a pretty clear understanding of what should happen. It's just policing it, right? It's hard. Right. But I'm pretty sure, you know, I feel confident saying if the Supreme Court says, you know, and articulates the rule of Chevron, uh, the Chevron deference rule, it should follow that rule in every case in which Chevron deference applies. And so should every lower federal court. Now, whether they control interpretive techniques of state courts gets more into the st- concerns about state sovereignty. Well, can we go? Can we go there? Because we've I, I, as an example, at least a few, no, because this is in the middle. This is in the middle. So we've we've talked about the conventional wisdom and and whether, you know, what supports and detracts from the conventional wisdom. We've talked about the other end of the spectrum where state courts are required to use their own best lights. But there's something in the middle here, which is, yeah, the conventional wisdom is right, but the conventional wisdom can change. Like Congress can pass a law or yep. the Supreme Court can can change things. And one of the reasons why you might think they can't do that or they shouldn't do that maybe has to do with with federalism and sovereignty. So um, I don't know if that's the right turning point here. Joe, did you want to do something else, though? You seem completely. No, that's fine. You seem completely annoyed with me. Not at all. Not not at all. (laughs) Are you you guys married? (laughs) (laughs) No, No. he's trying to bait me. He's trying to get me to be annoyed by claiming I'm annoyed, but I'm not annoyed. But Mm. now I'm annoyed about his baiting me about being annoyed. (gasps) Yeah, see, this is. I, I think Joe would say that we that we uh, that our our friendship has all of the negatives of a married couple. Okay. <laughs> but I, but I'm dying to hear about sovereignty. Yeah. So why don't we t- why don't we take a turn <laughs> in, in that regard? All right. Well, so my answer to the sovereignty question is, you know, yes, it's a concern. I I don't think you know. I think we don't want to gut the state judiciary and make them simply puppets of the federal courts. Needless to say, but um. I actually think state sovereignty, it's sort of interesting to me how, while state sovereignty is like a sort of, you know, robust doctrine, generally speaking, that should limit federal power, it seems least important and powerful in the realm of thinking about state courts. Because state courts are this unique state institution that were intentionally harnessed in the U.S. Constitution to do the bidding of the federal courts and do the work of federal adjudication. The Madisonian Compromise, which said that we don't need to have lower federal courts, assumed state courts had to be available, that is, would be forced to be available, would be constitutionally required to be available to hear federal cases. So Congress and the president can't force state legislatures and state executive branch officials to do their bidding. And in fact, there's these anti-commandeering principles from Prince and other cases that, you know, tell them that, right? Tell the Congress and, and president of the United States, you cannot just take over state actors and make them do what you want. Um, but that's not true when it comes to state courts. And that's Testa versus Cat and, uh, you know, FERC versus Mississippi, our Supreme Court precedents in which they say, well, states are different. State, sorry, state courts are different. We've always assumed they would have to be at the bidding of, you know, doing the service of the federal government or, or, or helping the federal government by adjudicating federal cases and doing so in ways that we require them to do, you know, following some of our procedures, et cetera. So I think state sovereignty is weaker argument against Congress controlling state courts. And the only reason they had to make those distinctions is yeah. because of the wrong decisions in New York and Prince. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, the, so it's like part of this whole thing. I mean, I, I being a little facetious, but part of this whole puzzle is there are a lot of Supreme Court decisions about structure, which have occurred over the years. And we're trying to interpret everything in the context of this puzzle. Yeah. And there's not a reason like ex ante that we should think that that would that whole puzzle works out perfectly. True. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, uh, but but I anyway, I agree. Going back to the Madisonian Compromise, that yeah. seems that seems pretty clear, right, that they were intended to do this work. The question is, 
you know, the fact that they were intended and harnessed to decide federal questions from the beginning, right? And that was part of the compact among the states that was formed in the Constitution is that they would perform this thing and that they would treat federal law as supreme. Yeah. But it's a somewhat different question to ask them to treat a, another federal institution as supreme and pronouncing on that supreme law. You mean to, to tell them you've got to follow what Congress tells you to do? No, uh, what another court tells you to do, right? So, yeah. so in a, the Constitution is separate... well. The, well, the Constitution is very clear that federal law is federal statutes in the Constitution and treaties, and um, but it's not clear that federal that other federal institutions' pronouncements about the meanings of those things is also itself the kind of federal law that is supreme. So I agree. So that's where Congress could just say to state courts, we have a federal law that tells you that you must follow the regional federal court of appeals, your regional federal court of appeals. And the supremacy clause would make that statute stand on a firmer ground than would a Supreme Court pronouncement to the same effect. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Since the supremacy clause doesn't refer to pronouncements of the Supreme Court as being supreme. But it does refer to statutes being supreme. Yes, I think that would be the sounder, clearer way to do it and probably better in the sense that it could be sort of tailored to specific circumstances. So just just to be clear, I totally agree with this. And I agree that I, I actually think that we don't even need a statute that this could happen just through uh, federal court practice. And, and there are good reasons for it to happen. And I think good reasons are enough to make this happen. So I'm totally on board with this. But let me throw a curveball here. Um, uh so the statute itself would be federal law, but I'm wondering, you know, would yeah, you deal with this in the article a little bit, so maybe I'm just retreading the same ground. But you know, could Congress pass a statute designating the uh, to go? Let me go back to Kentucky again. <laughs> the the statutes passed by the legislature of Kentucky is binding federal law. Like, can they designate yeah. something, some other legal data as yeah. federal law, and therefore kind of smuggle them into the supremacy clause? Because that seems a little yeah. bit like what this is doing. So there's nothing in the Constitution that says the pronouncements of inferior federal courts yeah. are themselves the kind of federal law to which the supremacy clause applies. Yeah. And you're saying they could, that Congress could pass a statute so designating those yeah. rulings. And I, if that's the case, why can't – first of all, is that right? Um, it certainly, you know, the, the statute passed by Congress has the form of federal law. But is it, you know, would that would it, would there be an infirmity, a constitutional infirmity in that statute because of the way that it tried to smuggle new things into the supremacy clause? You know, I don't I don't think so. And in fact, I think the best evidence of that is Chevron. Right. All right. Now, Chevron was a judicial opinion, but they said Congress intends for us to defer to agencies. Right. That was the a significant part of the rationale. There was a couple different strands there. But one of them was. We think when Congress hasn't been clear and has left gaps to be filled by an agency, it intends for courts to follow what agencies say the law means. And so I think that's an example of, you know, Congress, by enacting an ambiguous statute, has to, has told courts to follow agencies. So it's the same. I think we are have a real world example of Congress doing just that, telling courts to follow another uh, institution's decision making. Yeah, that's 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 right. Um, and that's the and, and even if Chevron isn't perfectly clear about that, that's certainly the theory in Mead. The Mead yeah. case makes it a matter of, you know, what Congress intended in passing the statute. Yeah. yeah. But but it's almost it, it. But that seems to rest on a on a on on a conclusion about the legitimacy of the of the of the way the congressional statute interacted with the with the 
constitutionally mandated separation of powers. And I only say this because I have a hard time believing that a statute that designated, again, like maybe even a city council, right, uh, uh, the actions of a city council is federal law. You know, these shall be binding on all federal and state courts. You know, a statute that says, that that would seem to go too far, partly because the, um, um, that, that you would be, you know, whether it's an alienation of legislative power, I think the, the, the functional reason would be that you'd be designating to an institution the power to make binding law in, 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 um, over others when those others didn't have a real voice in that institution. But, and so, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I see, I see a, a couple different problems, including what you were just saying, so I didn't mean to interrupt. But I also think it might be a non-delegation problem, like, at least as you're describing it. It's like Congress has no influence or control over the Kentucky state courts and the you know, city council or, you know, so it'd be very weird for Congress to say, you must follow the law as issued by this other institution that we don't have any say over or control over. Whereas with a federal agency, Congress retains some power and control. So maybe it's yeah. too far, goes too right. far. Now well, then sub- how do the federal courts fit into that? This subdelegation point, at least for the sake of analogy, it, the, the, um, in, in the many disputes between, um, the FCC and other actors involved in implementing the 1996 Telecommunications Act. <laughs> um, one of the things the FCC wanted state commissions to do was to play a particular role in in figuring out ha- what access other people would have to the local phone network. Uh, and the DC Circuit said, "No, FCC, you can't subdelegate to a state public utility commission." And it was exactly the rationale just stated that. Um, subdelegation can be proper when it's one federal actor to another federal actor, but not when it crosses from federal to state because the lines of accountability become too confused. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. That you need to stay within a particular regime. So for right. Congress to go point to the city council of Portland, Oregon, yeah. um, is, is, it just jumps the rails. It, but whereas when federal, when that would Congress, be something else, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But when Congress says, um, yeah, here's an agency that's a federal agency that's implementing the statute. And if there are any ambiguities, their interpretations have to be deferred to. You still have you're all within the federal box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's definitely true. I'm just I'm wondering how the. I'm wondering how the federal – it seems to me there's an issue here. You know, basically they're delegating to federal courts, to, to federal inferior courts, the power to make binding law. And I'm one, it's still in the federal You're box. You're saying if the statute existed. If the statute that – yeah, the one that, that, that Amanda defends in the, in the piece, right. right, as a possible solution to this. So I think we all agree there's a problem and it would be better to resolve the interstate conflict and to have – uh, and have a doctrine which is functionally and not just formally the equivalent of Erie working on the federal side, right? I certainly think that, and right. I take it from your piece that that's essentially your view, Amanda. Yeah. I mean, it, ultimately. Yes. And so the question is, how do we get there? Or, first of all, are we already there, or is the conventional wisdom correct? Are we prevented from being there because of the uh, a dwarf one theory? Yeah. Or, or is there a possible way to get there either through federal common law or statute? And what I'm wondering is uh, what are the possible barriers to that statute, um, which I think should exist, yeah. right? Um, but it does seem to me that there is um, uh, – that it's Congress trying to designate – You know, th- th- there's something different about – I mean Chevron's a good example because it is a matter of, of – of the of the Congress talking to both the executive and to the courts, saying, "Courts, I want you to treat uh, 
I want you, the courts have concluded this from legislation, but but I want you to treat what this agency says as basically conclusive, so long as it's a permissible construction of yeah. what the outlines that we've had here, right? Right. Um, can they do that with respect to courts? Well, one of the reasons they can do it with respect to agencies has to do with electoral accountability and the fact that Congress oversees the agencies and everything else. Yeah. But uh, but it's the court's very independence, which might make this a little bit different. And some of the very things you cite in the article, Amanda, about the inability of the Supreme Court really to monitor because of the, you know, I think you point to the article that, um, uh, um, who, who was it? Um, it? It was... Uh, um, from Chicago, um, Strauss wrote yep. about 150 cases a year, right? Yeah. Uh, and of course, now it's half that, right? It's yeah. like 70, 70 <laughs> cases a year. Yeah. So is that can't possibly, you know, so, so it seems to me there are some different considerations uh, uh, here if you take this model. And I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I have the right model. There may be a simpler answer to this, and I've made it more complicated than it is. Well, I'll just point out, I think your concerns are, that you're flagging are, are there's sort of two cross-cutting problems. One is the state sovereignty idea of telling state what's, states what to do. But there's also a concern about just how much can Congress interfere with judicial decision-making generally. So there's been a lot written about could Congress change the rules of precedent for federal courts. And the view is yes, they could. But there are some limits there because you don't want Congress interfering you know, too heavily in the adjudication process or it loses its independence and its you know, uh, adjudicative nature. So... I do think there are limits on Congress. For example, I don't think it can try to control the rules of precedent to try to control the outcome in specific cases. I think that clearly is a problem if it's doing that. So I just, I'll point out, I think there are limits on Congress, both on the state sovereignty side, but also just generally speaking on how it interferes with judicial decision making. And I hear you as raising both concerns. Yeah, and I agree with you on that last point, partly because I think there's a value in in some some of the ultimate legal questions remaining primitive and subject to individual views, you know? Does it make the statute more or less infirm if it not only says state Supreme Courts, you must, uh, you you are bound by the regional circuit in which you sit on questions of federal law. Um, and in addition, there's a, there's a, there's a right of appeal. To, Does, to, to the, to the circuit court. To that circuit court. And Does then, that make it then, more yeah. infirm or less infirm? What do you think, Amanda? Um, actually, I think less infirm, although I don't think it's infirm, but I think less infirm <laughs> because to the degree that some people think, well, precedent should only follow if there, uh, the presidential force only only should come from an appellate review, then the fact that there's a built-in appellate review would solve that concern for those who have that concern. I don't, but some do. And actually, the other thing I like about it is it could be like discretionary, right? So right now, our court of appeal, the, the lower federal courts of appeals, they have they have to hear the cases brought to them. They don't have the Supreme Court's power to pick and choose. But maybe right. they could be given like certiorari jurisdiction Ooh, for, yeah. I should wish I'd put this in the article. Um, I actually had, had this written down on the margin. Oh, really? I, I, <laughs> well, yeah. You know, but it was like, because it's, it's, this is like, yeah. certiorari is like ex post certification. Yeah. So, I, so this would be the flip of the solution on the state side. So yeah. you can, you know, so what I'm talking about here is like, you know, if, you, if you're litigating in federal court and a big state issue comes up. Yeah. Some states accept what's called certification and some federal courts do this where they can certify a question to the so that you're really certifying a somewhat abstract legal question, but in the context of a case to a state court to resolve. And then it goes back to the federal court for resolution. And that's kind of allows the state court to weigh in before decision rather than after a decision like certiorari. But it's still discretionary on both. And I think either of those could work in this case. Yeah, I like that idea. And I think 
you know, to, to the practical point of, well, maybe if they're told to follow lower federal court precedent, but there's no way to police that, they just won't, which is, you know, a reasonable point, although I'd hope the norms of it would take over. You right. know, then maybe it's really useful to have, I do think there might be a problem with every case in a state court getting appealed to a federal court. I mean, you know, at some point litigation needs to end and there's something to be said mm. finality, et cetera. But I like the certiorari point because I think the mere threat of review by the federal court of appeals might do a whole lot of work. It would certainly eliminate, yeah, you know, it would certainly, it would certainly eliminate open defiance. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and actually, do you know empirically? Yeah. So, so what would happen is just yeah. the same that happens with cert to the Supreme Court, but yeah. it may be more freak, frequent if it's easier to do. I don't know. Um, yeah. But how often, how many state court decisions have federal issues which are appealable at the end that are not already appealed yeah. to the United States Supreme Court? So I don't have like a number to give you, but all I can tell you is the vast majority of federal law is decided by state courts. That's why. So um, when Mike Dorf was talking on your show, he said, you know, this isn't at one point, it's like not a whole lot is at stake here. And, you know, I, I agree with him. This isn't about world peace. You know, like this is not the most weighty issue our nation needs to weigh at the moment. Well, well wait, hold on. That's we thought we were. <laughs> that's that's why we had you on. We thought we, right. this is it. Well, I hate to say that, but I will. <laughs> but I don't think it's quite as minimal. I think he's sort of in an offhanded way a little bit. I don't mean to criticize Mike Dorf, who's amazing, but he sort of, sort of says, like, <laughs> look, it's not that big a deal. Actually, yeah. I found a fair number of examples of intrastate splits on important questions of law, like is the state sodomy statute in Virginia still a statute under which people can be prosecuted under after Lawrence versus Texas? That's like an, a question on which Virginia state courts disagree with the Fourth Circuit. Or is there personal jurisdiction over a manufacturer under a stream of commerce theory? That's a question over which I think Maryland and Virginia have reached different conclusions from the Fourth Circuit. Mm-hmm. So I actually think there's a fair number. You had you had one in Texas too, didn't you? I forget what that issue yeah, was. Yeah, there was a Texas was whether you can keep questioning somebody. Uh, under yeah, it was a criminal. Yeah, I was just in terms of the number of actually, but, like the yeah. number of cases adjudicated. Yeah, the state courts do way more work than the federal courts yeah. do. Yeah. Just in terms of sheer numbers of people Im- affected by this. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I think and, actually it could be a fair number of cases of what I'm trying to say. And it could be a slightly bigger problem. It's not like a rarity that there's a difference between state and federal courts, state and lower federal courts that doesn't get. I think it's normal for there to be a state court decision that differs from a lower federal court decision and to never get Supreme Court review. I think that happens far often, far more often than we think. So the question would be under this proposal, uh, you know, under this proposal, how, you know, so. How would the federal uh, uh, courts of appeals maintain a cert pool of some kind? You know, so how yeah. first of all, would it increase the number of appeals to federal court from state courts? And right now, all those go to the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. W- would that very same number just now go to the courts of appeals first? Yeah. Or would it increase because of some perceived, you know, easier route? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then what would be the rate of grant? Uh, so you'd have to write, you know, how yeah. how to exercise this. You know, maybe you'd in the statute, you'd put some guidelines on the yeah. discretion or something. Hmm. And uh, would they, so would this increase the capacity of the federal courts? You would think so because there are a lot of more courts of appeals judges than there are Supreme Court justices. But would it, since it's just a drop in the bucket right now that are accepted on cert, yeah. would this be like 10 drops in the bucket? And so it's really, you know, you wonder how much more work it's doing. And yeah. uh, anyway, I don't know if yeah. you thought about that at all. Well, I haven't because I actually, this whole idea of sort of certiorari review was been raised for the first time in this podcast to you know for me anyway, um which is a i think really interesting idea yeah, everybody cite the show, yeah, cite the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah i mean absolutely can't i mean i would love to have put it in my article but i didn't but i would say that um i would say that it may not be that many cases but it would be the biggest bang for the buck cases so it would be because uh, under the hypothetical federal statute i proposed in the article i would say congress should require state courts to follow lower federal court precedent 
only when it's the regional federal court of appeals that has opined. So it wouldn't be like every time a state court differs from a lower federal court, there could be some certiorari review to another lower federal court. I'm, I, I wouldn't posit that. But I would say, well, maybe it makes sense that we tell the state courts you have to follow your regional federal court of appeals. And there's an opportunity if a litigant thinks you haven't done that to seek cert in that regional federal court of appeals. And there I'd say, even if it's just one case per regional federal court of appeals a year, so let's say, you know, whatever, 12 cases a year, those are really big bang for the buck cases. Those are cases where you put an end to intrastate disuniformity. Yeah. I think it'd be quite valuable and would like, you know, triple or double at least the number of cases the Supreme Court uh, that federal courts resolve involving the state Supreme Courts. Because right now the Supreme Court resolves somewhere between like seven and 12. And, and when those cases, you know, if the Supreme yeah. Court accepts cert in those cases. Um, yeah. And there might be they might be more likely, you know, if the if the Court of Appeals accepts cert and does something, then then you're seeing like yes. the Supreme Court has evidence of a, of a federal state kind of split. Exactly. Um uh, it might improve the the reasoning and, you yeah. know, because you've had not just a state Supreme Court, which yeah. may be the first appellate body that looks at the issue yeah. uh, in a lot of states. They don't, you know, they'll take it right out of the trial court. Yeah. Uh, and now you've got at least two appellate bodies looking at it, which in the federal courts of appeals are are generally, you know, they're excellent. They have lots of great ideas. So this yeah. would seem to be better. Yeah. Now, in oh. the in the case of a state, maybe you just said this and I zoned out, but but so <laughs> state, a lot. state Supreme Court, yeah, you don't know the half of it. Um, this, the st- state Supreme Courts are themselves frequently um, discretionary in their review of the intermediate state appellate court. Yes. Right. Yeah. Did you just say this? No, I, I said the opposite. But oh, okay. I was talking about how state Supreme Courts sometimes take up issues directly from trial courts. Right, so, but yeah. but here, so here's here's a wrinkle. Um, if if our cert to regional circuits statute exists, yeah. Um, and we say, okay, this, the, the state Supreme Court is bound to apply. What about the state intermediate appellate court, right? Presumably it should also be bound to follow the regional circuit yes. on a question. Um, and so if, if the a person who loses that case thinks that the reason it lost is because the state intermediate appellate court didn't follow the federal regional circuit court's holding, um, should it be able to go? On cert to the intermediate regional well, why circuit not? court. Yeah, I mean the rule would be that the state is bound. Yes, right. The yes. state is the bound by the court. state not... judiciary. Yeah, right. And so it really doesn't matter yeah. which state court it has has done it or should it. Well, like what about from a state trial court? It should, doesn't matter now. Should they be? Should they be required to exhaust their appeal to the state intermediate? You know, I think you're required to cert petition for cert in the state supreme court first. I would yeah, think that just, makes sense. It's like habeas. Like you can't yeah, get to a federal district court until you've exhausted your state law remedies. But ah, ju- just so, like it is petitioning for cert right now to the uh, to the United States Supreme Court. It's just you got to yeah. – we're basically deflecting all of those cert petitions to courts of appeals. Yeah, absolutely. So you yeah. you build in an exhaustion mechanism here in your – You use the one you've already we're got for cert. We're writing a statute, people. We got yes. to – oh, the details yeah, okay, matter. Okay, fair, okay, fair, 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 okay. Someone have yeah. a pen and paper? <laughs> yeah, let's – don't say the show is not good for anything. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting it done on this show. I'm sure but lots you know, of members of Congress are listening right now. Oh, yeah. We've got lots of we – got, we, we did have a lot of listeners. Joe is slowly insulting every member of the Supreme Court and hey, every member wait of Congress. Well, I mean, over time, we're, they're peeling off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever said even the, as the slightest negative word about Justice Kagan, about Justice Sotomayor. Um, and it's not my fault that Stephen Breyer can't ask a question to save his own life. 
All right, that's I, not my problem. I love I love his questions. It just as I, I, you mean I, his novels <laughs> that are rendered as dramatic readings. <laughs> you know, the one thing I feel bad about is just how much longer we kept Amanda than you probably told her that we would keep her. <laughs> Now, part of that was the little technical stuff at the beginning. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Our, lis- our listeners don't need to know about yeah, any of that. Yeah, but yeah. Um, uh, Amanda, b- yeah. before we turn you loose, it, you know, at this point, you, you, we, we, do you, is there anything else you wanted to say? Got it. Or, or, <laughs> I think we have fully exhausted the topic. Um. So, so this the show is ripe for appeal, and of course, you know, you know where people appeal the show. You, you, it's it's to, to the court of Michael Dorff. That's what like, he corrects all, all the things we get wrong in the show. Seem yeah. to show up in his blog. No, but it's definitely discretionary. I think he declines most appeals. <laughs> he I think he should does. end with a what is it? He's not infallible because he's. He's not final because he's infallible. He's infallible because he's final. Should we there you go. I won't. I won't qualify it. And his infallibility. And our, and our show doesn't do a lot of mischief because it's you know discretionary whether to listen to it. Yes. <laughs> and most people exercise that discretion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, well, this is so fun. I mean, I really yeah, enjoyed the article and I enjoyed the chat. So well, thank too. you so thank much. You. So thank much you so much. To let oh, you on. Thanks a lot. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. Take care. <laughs> you too. Bye.